Good morning, church. Um, we are going to go ahead and move on to the sermon. This morning, we're going to continue our series on the book on, on the Psalms. We are uh, taking a small uh, every year. I mean, I, this is my first summer here, but every summer here at Trinity, we like to take some time to look at the Psalms, and so we do uh, four Psalms. This year, we decided to do only a couple of Psalms so that we wouldn't delay our first Samuel series. And so last week, Tim talked about Psalm 106, and today we're going to go uh, ahead and look at Psalms 139. But before I do that, I uh, just wanted to mention a couple of times, um, uh, a couple of times now, a couple of things. I'm so sorry. First of all, you'll notice it's me up here and not Tim, and that's because Tim and Kim are today in the Netherlands. We have a couple of pictures to show you. They are, this is Tim preaching this morning at the church in the Netherlands, and um, we have Kim sharing or singing, or you know how she is. I don't know exactly what she was doing, but it was wonderful, I am sure. And uh, so they are, they're, you know, in the Netherlands this weekend. And actually, Tim and Kim are watching us right now from the airport in Schiphol. And so I think we should say hi. Uh, <laughs> and um, anyways, we miss you guys. Uh, they will be gone for the next couple of weeks because they are taking advantage of the fact that they're in Europe. They're going to take a couple of weeks of vacation. And so uh, I would say as you know, a pastor and as a friend of theirs, if you have an emergency, call me, call one of the elders. Let's give him a couple of weeks, you know, to, to enjoy uh, on their own. Okay, now their children, you know, you guys deal with their parents. I don't know what you guys are going to do about it, but you can also call me. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is you have, you probably noticed that you had uh, uh, McKenna and Audrey out there this morning who were sharing with you some some uh, coffee and muffins. Uh, the reason they're doing that is because we're, we're raising funds to go to Bolivia. Some of you guys may know we're going to Bolivia in less than a month. We're going to be there. We're going to be visiting uh, the orphanage in Caranavi called Casa de Esperanza. And so these ladies are, you know, they took a step of faith to go and they are now raising funds. I would say as a church, how awesome would it be to just, you know, fully fund the trip today? Um, but here's a, uh, there's a good news. Uh, the Tuttles, a wonderful couple, the Tuttles, who you guys remember uh, whenever I was affirmed as an elder, we had tacos that day. Well, they are going to have their truck, their taco truck, uh, Tacos del Mar. They're going to be at Tire Kingdom on Thursday night. And they're going to be donating 20% of their, uh, what they're making that night towards the trip. And so, what a better way to help someone than to eat muffins, coffee, and tacos, you know, in order to send these ladies to, uh, to Bolivia. I mean, those are some of my few favorite things to do anyways. And so, join us and please uh, come and support them. With that said, how about we pray and jump into the Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your Word. I thank you, Lord, that we do not have to wonder what you think, what you want us to do, but that you have spoken to us through your word. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that your word is alive and life-giving, Father, that in it, Father, as we look at it, we can see ourselves and learn not only about you, but about ourselves. I pray, Father, that as we look at Psalm 139, Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us see not only how great you are, but what that implies for us as your followers and as your children. I pray, Father, that you would help me as I preach, Father, that if there's anything that I say that comes from my own understanding and does not align to your word, I, I, Father, I pray that it would fall to the ground and be forgotten. 
Lord, help us be a church with a sermon. Help us be people of the book, people that know your word, people that, that, that uh, consume your word day and night. Father, that we will be transformed by it. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at Psalms 139 uh, this morning. But before we read it together, um, I want to say a couple of things. First, uh, some of you may remember, because my sermons are so memorable, you may remember my first sermon here at Trinity. I talked about something called the imminent frame. I mentioned that we live in what Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, calls the imminent frame. What does it mean, though? It means, as Taylor says, that in the age we live in, we have lost sight of that which is transcendent. We have lost sight of God. Meaning that as a society, we are so convinced of our self-sufficiency and our self-belonging that we rarely think about God. We only have eyes for that which is immediate. We only have ears for that which the world tells us is important. We live in what we call the imminent frame. We look at only what is immediate and we forget about the transcendent. If we're not careful, inside this imminent frame, we will put God to the side and he will become nothing more than a stranger, a mere force, or maybe a distant creator that has nothing to do with us today. The imminent frame, then, is basically a godless world where we are at the center of all things. The problem with this is that a world without God is actually a pretty miserable place. Mike Cosper puts it better. He says, The imminent frame is ultimately a dissatisfying place to live because it shackles a human heart inside a world that is simply too small for it. You see, the psalm we're looking at this morning is meant to pierce that imminent frame. While reading Psalm 139, any small thoughts that we, ha- that we may have of God are going to be crushed. This psalm will not only remind us of the greatness of God and the goodness of God, but that His goodness actually has also direct implications in the way that we live our lives. It has direct implications in who we are as human beings, human beings created in His image. You may remember, for those of you who were here last week, Tim preached from Psalm 106. And while he was doing that, he talked about Trinity's unapologetic stance against abortion which comes not from a partisan affiliation, but from a biblical view of man. Now, my hope this morning is not to be repetitive, to repeat what Tim has already said, but my hope is to expand in some of what he said last week in relation to what it means to be pro-life from a biblical perspective and not from a partisan perspective. Now, the psalm we're going to be looking at this morning is actually divided, divided into four main stanzas. If you open your Bible and you look at it, you'll see there's four main stanzas. This morning, we will see that each, each of these stanzas describes one of God's perfections. One of the things that, the, you know, they, they will describe God. In the first stanza, we will see how the psalmist talks about God's knowledge. He talks about his omniscience, the fact that God knows all things. In the second stanza, we'll talk about God's presence. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. In the third stanza, we will see, uh, we will talk about God's creation, about how He made us and what that means for us. And then in the last one, we will talk about His holiness. How about you and I dive into this psalm? Let us read verses 1 through 6. And it says this To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And I want us to see from this passage that God's knowledge is our source of comfort. In his magnum opus, The Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin says this. He says, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. By that, John Calvin means that in order to truly know God, we need to know ourselves and our need for God. And in order to truly know ourselves, we need to know God. I believe this is exactly what Psalms 139 is going to help us do. By looking at the greatness of God, it will help us understand who we are in relationship to Him, in relation to Him. So, here in the first six verses we just read, we see the the psalmist marveling at God's knowledge. Not only His omniscience, but His intimate knowledge of His children. You see, God is all-knowing. He knows all things. But what David is marveling at is this, that God doesn't know just all things, but He knows us personally. God's knowledge goes beyond only omniscience. You see, God is not a glorified Google. He's not a glorified or divine database that has all answers or that has all knowledge. God is a personal God And his knowledge is a personal kind of knowledge. It's personal and it's intimate. God knows me and God knows you. The psalmist says, you have searched me and know me. You see, God doesn't doesn't know just things about us, but he knows us intimately. God doesn't know only who we are and where we live. He has a lot more than just facts about us. He knows more than just trivia about every one of us. You know, my son Tiago, he, he has a lot of knowledge about trivial things like Pokemon, for example. And uh, he can talk your ears off about Pokemon, which one is his favorite, and what color this is, and everything. He knows so much about Pokemon, but guess what? He has never met a Pokemon. <laughs> he doesn't know a Pokemon. You see, God doesn't just know facts about us, but he knows us intimately. David tells us God knows not just all our activity, but he knows our thoughts. He knows even our words before they hit our tongues. Have you ever thought about that? Now, this is amazing, isn't it? That God knows our thoughts. That he knows our every word. But it's also quite terrifying, isn't it? With the psalmist, you and I can say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It will blow our minds to know that God knows our every thought. Yes, even that thought you're thinking, oh man, does he? (laughs) God knows us, and he knows us personally. Now the the, the fact that God knows all things about us is wonderful, but like I said, it is rather unsettling too, isn't it? Because you see, I've heard it said that man's deepest desire is to be fully known to be forgiven, and to still be wanted. Do you see, in our hearts, we all want to be known. 
We want to be known and we want to be accept, accepted for who we are. We want to be known and wanted. And yet, what do we do? We want to be known and yet we build a wall or a fence around ourselves because we think in the heart of hearts, we think that if people truly were to know who we are, they wouldn't love us. They wouldn't really want us. We all have this feeling. We all think that if people were to truly know who we are, they would not want us. They would not love us. Now, the God of the universe knows you intimately. He knows your thoughts. He knows your fears. He knows your insecurities. And you know how he feels about you? He doesn't push you away. The psalmist says this. He says, um, that far from pushing us away and rejecting us, he lays his hand upon us. You see, God knows your thoughts, your desires, your insecurities. And instead of pushing you away, he leans in. He wants you for himself. Now let me ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you actually know and believe that God knows you intimately? And if you do that, do you actually believe that God wants you for himself? That he, instead of pushing you away from himself, he actually wants you near him. Church, that is the God that you and I serve. A God that, though he knows our deepest and darkest secrets, he draws us to himself and he offers us love, forgiveness, redemption, and peace. How about we keep reading? Let's go to our second stanza. So now we've talked about God's knowledge. Now I want us to talk about God's presence and how His presence is our source of peace. Verse 7 says this. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. In the second stanza, David, we see him here marveling at God's omnipotence. Ah. Uh, Sorry, not omnipotence, omnip, uh, omnipresence. We see God's omnipresence here. God, David is saying, where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to the mountain, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, I'm, you're there too. He knows that God is omnipresent. But what he's marveling at is not just that God can be at all, you know, at all, in, in all places at all times. But what he's marveling at is that God is near him. God is always with you and with me personally. Church, what David is saying here is that he cannot escape God. We don't know exactly when David wrote this, but the, but the truth is that we can see this in Scripture. We've been going through the life of David just recently, and we know that from his early life, even when his father and his siblings despised them, God saw him. We know if we keep, you know, as we continue with First and Second Samuel, we will see that one day David will be in the cave of Adullam, tired, exhausted from being chased by Saul. 
and his army. And guess what? God is with him. When David sinned against God, remember that when he used his power as a king to coerce and to abuse a married woman and then to murder her husband, a faithful soldier of the king, David was still not alone. God was with him. And God showed that he was with him by doing what? By sending a prophet to confront him of his sin and by calling him out. And when David realized the weight of his sin, when David realized the depth of his sin against God, God was still there and gave him forgiveness and restoration. Church, in the same way, if you are a child of God, you can be assured that no matter what your circumstances are, God is never far from you. Like David, you can say, if I go to the mountain, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are also there. Church, I want you to hear this morning, and I want you to believe it. God is always with you. Not in a general way, but in a personal way. God is near you. Church, are you hurting? God is with you. Are you doubting? God is still with you. Are you running from him today? God is with you. Are you surrounded by the darkness of depression, loneliness, and anxiety? Guess what? Whether you can see it or not, God is with you. God is always with you. And you can believe that. Not because I'm making an empty promise from up here, but because Jesus himself, before he ascended into heaven, one of the last things he said to his disciples was this. He said, I will be with you always. Let's keep reading. Let's read verses 13 through 18. And here we're going to see God's creation and how God's creation is our source of dignity. Verse 13 says this, it says, For, your form, for you formed my inward parts. Now, as, as I read this, I want you to think, I want you to, to actually consider and think about the, what this says about God, about the intimate relationship of God and us as created beings. He says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Church, at this point, I want to zoom in into this passage. I want us to take a little longer in this, in this section that we just read. And I want to give a little bit more detail um, and expand on the topic of human dignity that Tim talked about last week. Now, it's worth mentioning that as David was writing Psalm 139, he was not writing this psalm as a manifesto for the pro-life movement. And yet, the truths that he utters here are foundational to our biblical ethics and our view of human dignity. In this third stanza, we see the psalmist, David, marveling at the fact that God created him. David tells us here that God was intimately involved in his creation. 
You see, our God is not a distant God that just set, up the world, set the world in motion and then walked away from it. Our Creator God remains intimately involved with His creation. You and I were both created by God. For God, um, we were created by God, we were created for God, and we were created in the image and likeness of God. David says, you formed me. You knitted me. You saw my unformed substance. Church, what we see here in the womb of David's mother is not a clump of cells. What we see here is a person that even before he was born, he was known and cherished by God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. And you see, this is exactly the source of human dignity and the foundation for universal human rights. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that without this biblical doctrine of creation, there is no grounds for what the world calls universal human rights? In his book, Sapiens, Yuval Harari very transparently articulates the only logical conclusion to a secular worldview. And that is the fact that if there is no doctrine of creation, there is no ground for human rights. There is no ground for equality. There is no ground for us to love one another. He says this. He says, the idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. And amen. He says, the Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul, and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Evolution is based on difference, not equality. Every person carries a somewhat different genetic code and is exposed from birth to different environmental influences. This leads to the development of different qualities that carry with them different chances of survival. Church, this is what we know as the survival of the fittest, right? What he's talking about here is the survival of the fittest. Later on in the same page, Harari says this. He says, human rights exist only in the imagination. Now, what I appreciate, and i got to give it to Harari, um, I appreciate that he's actually saying what many are not willing to say. And that is the fact that without the doctrine of a creator God, there is no intrinsic value in human life. When the survival of the fittest is the law of the land, there is no, there is no grounds for human rights. What David is telling us in this psalm is diametrically opposed to what Harari tells us about human beings. David is reminding us that because God is intimately involved in creating each one of us individually, and because he created us in his image and likeness, we have intrinsic value. While I was writing this very portion of my sermon, I was sitting at Starbucks, and at the table next to me there was a family. It was a young lady in a wheelchair with very severe disabilities. Her, who I can imagine and assume was her mother and a sister. It was so sweet to see these, these grown-up ladies, the three of them, playing a game of memory at a Starbucks table. It was a sweet and beautiful picture of selfless love by the part of mom and sister. Now, according to Harari's worldview, in which our value is directly proportional to what we bring to the table, 
this young lady has no value in and of herself. The reality is that she doesn't bring much to the table in terms of performance or productivity. She is not producing much. She is not in any way improving our society in a way that it's measurable. And yet, because of what David is telling us here, the mere fact that she was created in the image of God is what endows her with equal value to you and me and the President of the United States and any human being in the world. This church is what we call the doctrine of Imago Dei, the doctrine of the image of God. You and I are image bearers. There is nothing in creation that bears the image of God like you and me. And we say this not out of pride, but in humility. Now, the doctrine of Imago Dei has, has implications for the life of the Christian. When rightly understood and applied, the doctrine of Imago Dei has direct implications for our lives and the way that we treat our neighbor. And this morning, I want to talk about some of these implications. David just told us then that as humans, we were made by God, and as his creation, we are endowed with intrinsic value. So even though all humans are, equaled, uh, are equal in value and worth, there are some who are often left in the margins or fall through the cracks of society. All throughout Scripture, we can see that God has a tender heart for the vulnerable. We see all through the law and the prophets in the Old Testament that there are four main groups of people that the Word of God calls for us to care for. Scholars call this the quartet of the vulnerable. This group includes the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. As believers, when we call ourselves pro-life, as Tim mentioned last week, it goes well beyond just being anti-abortion. It goes well beyond just partisan discussions and fights. When we call ourselves uh, pro-life, uh, pro to be biblical pro-life means to care for the well-being of our neighbor, especially these four groups of people that the Bible highlights. First one, I want to talk about is the widow and women in general. Time and again, in Scripture, we see the people of God caring for the widow. Historically, women in society were at best second-class citizens. Widows especially were in a, in a very vulnerable position. And it wasn't until the dawn of Christianity that the world changed the way they treated women. Jesus modeled this care for women, not only by the way that he treated them with dignity, but by befriending them and by surrounding himself with women. We see that in his relationship with Mary and Martha and other ladies that surrounded his ministry. The way that he cared for the Samaritan woman, for the Syrophoenician woman, we see Jesus being a man in his time, he was still being a man that was caring and loving women. Jesus treated women in such a way that the first people to hear and tell others about his resurrection were women. This was not an accident, church. The early church rocked the Roman Empire with the way they treated women as equal at home and in the church in the middle of a society that wouldn't even allow them to be witnesses in a court of law. Tom Holland, an agnostic historian, once said, Christianity gave women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered. You see, in the broken world that we live in, between men and women, <clears throat> there is unfortunately... Uh, no 
sorry, equality between men and women, I'm so sorry, is not, unfortunately, uh, self-evident in the world that we live in. That's how broken it is. For generations, men went on abusing and taking advantage of women. And that continues today. But it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that introduced this concept of, of, of dignity of women, of equality of women. Now, we have to be careful to not only look at the things that are good in our history, but we can also learn from the things that we, where we were wrong. Unfortunately, at times, the church has done great damage to the credibility of the gospel precisely because of how they have treated women. And it would be silly for us not to acknowledge that. But when the church mistreated women, they did it by going against what Scripture has to say. By going against the truth of our Imago Dei. The doctrine of the Imago Dei and the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to treat our sisters with love and with dignity precisely because they were created in the image and likeness of our loving Father. This church includes... For us today, it includes protecting the widow. How are we loving the widow? How are we loving and caring for the single mother? How are we caring for the pregnant teenager today? The girls who are being swallowed up by the porn industry into sex slavery around the world. How are we loving them and serving them? Church, being pro-life includes caring for the widow and caring for our sisters around the world. The second group I want to talk about is the orphan, and children in general. Another group that usually falls through the cracks are the orphans and children who don't have parents that can care for them. Interestingly enough, one of the accusations that society hurls at the church is that we only care about giving birth, right? Have you ever heard that accusation? You know, the church doesn't, you know, you guys aren't really pro-life, you guys are pro-birth. Because you only want women to have children, and that's it. The problem with this accusation, though, is that both reality and history prove this accusation to be false. Since Christians are by far, by far, the demographic who is the most active in adoption, foster care, pregnancy centers, and many other charity initiatives that seek to care for the vulnerable. It is also true that the first orphanages and hospitals in the world were started by the church precisely because the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to care for children. Jesus himself modeled this by saying, let the children come to me. As his church let us say, let us go to the children today. Let us fight to protect children in the womb and children who are outside the womb but who remain vulnerable. Church, let us boldly consider asking God as a local church and as individual families if He is calling us to love our neighbor by getting involved in the foster care system or by adopting. Let us ask the Lord, how can we be part of the solution? The third group that I want to talk about this morning of what it means to be pro-life is the foreigner. It seems like it is a universal truth that in our broken nature, as humans, we are often suspicious of foreigners. Now, you can tell from my accent that I'm a foreigner, uh, so this may sound self-serving. But, you know, we see, that not only, uh, we see not only in the news, but we see it in Scripture 
that people are usually suspicious of the, of the, of the foreigner. We see it in Scripture in the way that Jonah treated the people of Nineveh. We see it the way that the Jews treated the Samaritans at the time of Jesus. And we see it today, you know, not just in America, but around the world. The way that people look at the foreigner. Now, what did Jesus do? He was once again countercultural in the way he treated the Samaritan woman. He was countercultural in the way that he treated the Syrophoenician woman and the way that he talked about the Gentiles. You see, as Americans, we are the Gentiles. The Bible talks about foreigners. We are the foreigner. Peter calls us exiles. We are in this world, but we are not from this world. And as exiles, the, God, the, the gospel compels us to live as ambassadors of grace. To love our neighbor, even, in, even the neighbor who doesn't speak your language or looks like you. And by the way, may I clarify that I am not talking about immigration policies here. Because no matter where you stand when it comes to immigration policies, we are called to, as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, to treat the foreigner and the stranger with love and care. Loving a foreigner is not a political issue, but a gospel issue. And this leads us to the four group uh, that the Bible talks about in detail, and that is the poor. Jesus talked about the poor a lot. One of the things most of us remember that Jesus said is the fact that he said that the poor would always be with us. Throughout Scripture, there is a lot, the, the Bible has a lot to say about the poor. And I have a list of verses right here that I could read, but we're running out of time, so I'm not going to. But a couple of the things that Scripture does say is, for example, this, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Jesus himself uh, get, uh, said to us, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Galatians, we are told, only they asked um, us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And church, we could read a lot of passages about the poor because the Bible has a lot to say about the poor. But the reality is, that I think we already know what we're supposed to do about the poor. The Bible calls us to be generous towards the poor. The problem is that if you're like me at all, you will come up with a lot of reasons not to give to the poor. Jonathan Edwards wrote an an article uh, or a sermon titled Christian Charity. In it, he tells us that believing the gospel will move us to giving to the poor. He goes as far as to say that caring for the poor is a crucial sign that we actually believe the gospel. Then he anticipates a couple of objections, which I'm paraphrasing here, but first he tells us that we will be tempted not to give to those who are, and these are his words, ill-tempered or ungrateful in spirit. Jonathan Edwards, he sees the questions or the, the objections that we might come up with when it comes to giving to the poor. And he says this, he says, Christ loved us. Christ was kind to us and was willing to relieve us, uh, though we were very evil and hateful, of an evil disposition, not deserving of any good. So we should be willing to be kind to those who are of an ill disposition and are very undeserving. The second objection he anticipates is another one that we might often be tempted to use, and that is the fact that we don't want to be generous to those who have brought it upon themselves. To this, Jonathan Edwards says, if they, are to come, if, sorry, if they are come to want by a vicious idleness and prodigality, yet we are not thereby excused from all obligation to relieve them. 
unless they continue in those vices. If they continue not in those vices, the rules of the gospel direct us to forgive them. I was just recently in Colombia, as some of you guys know, and I was overwhelmed by the number of people uh, begging in the streets. Then I was convicted by the Lord for my lack of generosity. You see, I come from Guatemala, so I'm used to people begging. And my heart has gotten hardened. And as I was in Colombia, I was convicted uh, by the Lord for my lack of generosity. Because for every person that asked for help, I had a reason not to give to them. The reality is that I wasn't inclined to be generous. And you know what I realized is that that may be an indication that though I can say it with my mouth, maybe in my heart I don't truly believe that these brothers and sisters are actually also created in the image of God. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you don't give to the poor, you know, it's always because you don't believe. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But I'm telling you, in my heart, I was convicted. That though I had a really, I had pretty good excuses not to give every time, I was convicted in my heart that maybe I had just way too many excuses, you know, and I could have been more generous. In his masterpiece, and one of my favorite stories ever, uh, Le Miserables by uh, Victor Hugo, he says this, he says, to love another person is to see the face of God. And I got to tell you, the first time I heard this, I didn't know how to feel about it. It sounded a little too fluffy and hyper-spiritual. But the reality is that when we see the face of God in others, meaning that we recognize that they were created in the image of God, we are compelled by God's Word and by the Spirit of God to love and care for our neighbor. Brothers and sisters, this psalm, along with the gospel of Jesus Christ, moves us to be pro-life and to work for the flourishing of our neighbor. How about we keep reading the psalm? I will warn you, this psalm takes a pretty hard turn right here. Okay? Uh, and I want us to talk about God's holiness and His righteousness. Um, verse 19 says this, and you'll see what I mean when, when, I, when I'm talking about a hard turn. Verse 19 says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Here's another turn. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there may be uh, if there be any grievous ways in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Church, this is a really interesting turn. David goes from marveling at God's knowledge to marveling to his as his presence to then marveling at his creation and what he means for him. Then in this last stanza, he takes a pretty harsh turn, like I said. And in verse nineteen, when I'm reading it, I'm, I want to be like, "You okay, David?" You see what David is doing here in this section, actually makes sense when you think about it because he is so marveling at how great God is that he starts getting upset at those that go against God at those who oppose God you see when contrasted with the holiness of God we all fall short and David knows that there are those who oppose God and he is righteously angry you see, the Bible does tell us that before we were in Christ, we were all 
objects of God's wrath. Those who intentionally oppose God do deserve to be slayed, like David is saying. But you know who else deserved to be slayed? We did. So then you see in verse 3, there's another sharp turn. And he's getting so upset about those, you know, David's getting so upset about those who oppose God. And at that moment, David realizes he is not free of sin. And you can feel the, 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 the change of tone. He then says this, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And then he follows it by saying, um, if there are any grievous, in, grievous ways in me, lead me in the way everlasting. And spoiler alert, there are grievous ways in David's heart. Search me, O God. What a dangerous prayer to pray if we pray it from the high horse of moral superiority. But I don't think that's what David is doing here. He's getting, he's getting worked up about those that oppose God. To the point that he's saying, I hate those who hate you. And then he says, but search me and lead me in your ways. You see, just like David, it is so easy to look at the evil taking place in the world and to be moved to anger. And that's not a bad thing. As long as it is righteous anger motivated by God's holiness and not a sense of superiority, that's okay. You see, you and I, we should be mad when we hear about abortion. We should, we, we, should, we should be heartbroken when we hear the things that are being pushed into our system. We should be mad at the abuse and the mistreatment of women, both inside and outside the church. We should be bothered by the way foreigners or immigrants are spoken of and treated without dignity. And we should be moved and we should be angry at poverty. Not only the poverty in other parts of the world, but the poverty in our own city and around where we live and the spaces we inhabit. This is all good. As long as, just like David, this leads us to the question of, what about me? What is my sin? What are my blind spots, Lord? If I ask God to search my heart, let me tell you, He will find grievous ways in me. He will. Remember, God knows my thoughts and every word before He touches my tongue. God knows the thoughts that I would be embarrassed for you to know of. You and I should often join David in asking the Lord to search our hearts and to lead us in His way. For every grievous way found in our hearts, for those who are in Christ, Jesus has already paid for them. We can confidently say, God, search our hearts. Not because we are perfect, not because we are morally superior to our neighbor, but because we know that the grievous ways he will find in our heart have already been paid for. And we are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. I'm going to call the worship team as we conclude. But I want you to hear this, church. The psalm we just read should move our hearts. It should stir our affections for God. It should pierce that imminent frame of this world that doesn't like to think about God. Because in on, only in thinking about God and understanding who God is can we truly understand who we are. Brothers and sisters, God knows you.
He knows your every thought. He knows your every doubt. He knows your every desire, righteous and unrighteous. He knows your every insecurity. God knows you and God cares for you and cares about you. Brothers and sisters, God is not distant. God is near you. You cannot hide from Him. Not in a creepy way, but in a way that brings comfort. He is with you when you pray. He is with you when you cry. He is with you when you're hurting. God is near and He cares deeply. Brother and sister, God created you. And because He created you, there is intrinsic worth in you. And God wants you for Himself. So let me ask you this morning, are you already His? Or are you still fooling yourself thinking that you belong to yourself? Brother and sister, God is holy. And that is a serious thing because we are not. But you see, far from pushing you away, He is drawing you to Himself. He wants to make you His because He loves you. You no longer have to be His enemy. He wants you to be His child. Church, would you, would you pray with me and then we're going to sing a song about how Christ will hold us fast. For those of us who are in Christ, He is always near. And if you do not yet know Him, would you come and talk to us at the end? Or would you talk to whoever invited you to church today? Because God wants you for Himself. And God is sovereign above all things. And the fact that you're here this morning, may that be a sign that He is drawing you to Himself this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You because by looking at Your Word, Father, not only do we see how great You are, but we can see how much You love us. And how much you want us for yourself. Heavenly Father, help us remember that you know all things. That you are ever present. That you was you who created us, Lord. And that you want us for yourself. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we sing these, this next song, that you would take hold of our hearts. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.